Hey guys, another great guest for you today, Bruce Bauer is here. Let me give you a little bit of an introduction of who he is and then I'll cede the floor to him. He is a film, literary and culture critic, PhD from uh, SUNY uh, Stony Brook. Uh, we'll talk about some of his literary criticisms maybe towards the end of the chat. Uh, author of many, many books, a few of which we'll focus on today, including While Europe Slept, How Radical Islam is Destroying the West from Within, then a second book, Surrender, Appeasing Islam, Sacrificing Freedom. And then finally, his, one of his recent books, 2012, The Victim's Revolution, The Rise of Identity Studies, and The Closing of the Liberal Mind. How are you doing, Bruce? Okay, how are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I know that you, you said that you rarely uh, do these uh, in, you know, uh, interviews, and so I'm uniquely honored that, you are, that you've agreed to sit down with me. Uh, so Same I back at you. Uh, sorry, say again? Same back at you. Oh, thank you, sir. Uh, so I thought we'd start with you. You've got a unique personal history in terms of how you left the United States and moved to Europe. Maybe you can start us off by telling us a bit about your personal journey. Well, let's see. I studied uh, English. I got a PhD in English. I uh, was a literary critic for several years, uh, almost exclusively. Um, and then I wrote a book called A Place at the Table in 1993, which is about gay rights. And four years later, I followed that up with a book called Stealing Jesus, which was a, a critical study of uh, Christian fundamentalism. And what happened was that after having written that book, and then after traveling around the U.S. promoting it and talking to people who had been scarred by fundamentalism, I really... Uh, wanted to live someplace that I thought was uh, free of fundamentalism. Um, and I uh, moved to uh, Amsterdam, which I, at the time, uh, ignorantly believed uh, had moved beyond, uh, beyond the worst aspects of, uh, of religion as it presents itself in America. And I uh, soon found out that that was not really the case. Now, this was uh, around when? Mid-90s? 98. 98. Uh, so then you, yeah. get, so you get to Amsterdam and then sort of your, your, illusion, your illusion of this wonderful, modern, tolerant uh, society was somewhat shattered. What were the forces that uh, sort of realigned reality with your expectations? Well, I, I mean, I, I thought I'd move to a place that uh, was a, 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 a secular, democratic um well, I didn't think it was a paradise. I wasn't that naive, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I, I I really thought it was a place that uh, gay rights were very strong. I'm gay. That was a a, a very positive thing for me. Um, and, and then one day I I I, I lived in a, I lived in Amsterdam actually for a very short while. But during that time, I lived in three different apartments in three different neighborhoods, and. And the third neighborhood was a neighborhood that was a heavily Islamic neighborhood. And I looked around me and I saw, okay, there's something going on here in Amsterdam. And I suspect elsewhere in Europe that nobody told me about. And I saw women in hijab. I saw you know, families with, with, with lots of Muslim kids that, that seemed to be keeping to, to themselves in their own in their own little community, and I thought, okay, this doesn't bode well. I, I don't think it bodes. I started looking into it. I really couldn't find much that was written about it, and what little I could find, I could find that was written about it was, uh, uh, was there was one book I found in the library that was uh, sold the whole thing as a, a, a very positive thing for Europe's future, that uh, Europe had become too secularized, and uh, the... Uh, 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 that Islam had, had become a, a, a phenomenon in Europe's cities and was increasingly uh, uh, prevalent in the cities, and that it was bringing the spiritual element that was lacking, and bringing the, diversity uh, and cultural enrichment. Well, and yeah, and I I thought, well, I don't buy this at all. Of course, I mean, I didn't. Yeah, I knew as much about Islam then as I I, I suppose. A lot of educated people did, which is to say, enough to say this is this is not necessarily a positive thing for any of us who believe in freedom, especially for a gay person. 
and I, I started looking into it. I started traveling around and seeing what was really going on in Europe, and I ended up writing a, a book called uh, While Europe Slept. Right. And so in that, so that book came around 2005, 2006, correct? Yeah, 2006. And, so, and yeah. so at that point, there had been already several high-profile incidents in Netherlands, uh, the killing of several prominent figures, which maybe you could talk about. Of course, Ayan Hirsi Ali was already becoming quite famous uh, in in the Netherlands. Eventually, of course, she moved to the United States. So did those particular incidents serve as sort of further catalysts for you to weigh in on the topic because they were so prevalent in everybody's uh, sort of psyche? Well, even before 9-11, I, right. uh, I wanted to write a, a book about the topic. Uh, and I wrote a book proposal, and my agent said, I'm not even going to show this to anybody. Nobody cares about this subject. My then agent, not my current agent. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, then, you know, then, of course, 9-11 happened. And, uh, and it was very frustrating because George W. Bush, you know, the... the on on nine eleven itself, he came out and he said something about these folks who did this. And I said, "Well, he's immediately striking the wrong tone. Right. This is this is just this is just foolish." And, and then, with, within a week, he had appeared at the uh, the National Cathedral alongside uh, Islamic uh, uh, imams, uh, who who later were shown to have dicey histories. Uh, and and they made they went out of their way to make it sound as if this had nothing to do with Islam. You know, this this was uh, you know Islam Islam was a religion of peace and all that stuff that we've gotten used to hearing uh, ever since then, and one you know one thing after another happened and you know I know I mean before and anything else happened. Meanwhile, in Europe, how did Europe react to nine eleven? In the media, in one country after another, there were articles saying, "Well, this isn't an attack on us. This is an attack." On America because America is so aggressive and it's an imperialist power and colonialism and blah blah blah, and uh, they're uh, they're getting their payback and uh, uh, we don't have to worry about this happening here. And of course, next thing you knew, it was happening here. Right. And so, so while Europe slept is in reference to the fact that uh, most people go about uh, happily pursuing their daily you know, uh, objectives, buying the groceries and preparing for their son's graduation and always thinking that whomever is, you know, uh, you know, making these warning calls somehow must be a fear monger and they find strategies to negate these warnings, right? I mean, is, well, that, is that the idea of why everybody is sort of sleeping? So many of the elite Europeans around me. When I say elite, I mean people like in the media, people in the academy, politicians. Um, they had this idea that, well, the, the Muslims have very good reasons to be hostile to America, but we love them and we let them move in here and we don't ask anything of them. We don't ask them to learn the language. We don't ask them to work. We'll put them on welfare for life. We'll we'll set them up in their own home. We'll buy them a car. Uh, how can they do anything but love us? Right. And and this this is what what was going on all around you. But I thought, well, these people have no understanding of basic human psychology, let alone any understanding of Islam. Uh, and and and, uh, and so they would yeah they were sleeping they were they were they were out of it they were comatose and and I, I did a clip uh, you know a few months ago on my uh, YouTube channel where I talked about uh, you know so called liberals praying at the altar of self flagellation right and they, yep. it, you know it is it is a sort of it is a central cue of belongingness as a quote progressive. To turn these problems inward, right? So if they, if they, in this case, uh, you know, Islamic extremists uh, do something badly, ultimately it's not because there's something in their ideology that proposes this. It must be some grievance, some fair grievance that they hold against us. It must be a retaliation for how bad we are. And I noticed that in speaking, for example, and we'll come to the Scandinavian context in a bit, uh, speaking to a Norwegian fellow where, you know, despite the incredible evidence that was in front of him, his discourse was always 
whatever they did, it demonstrated how bad we are, right? I mean, it's a real cancer of the human no. spirit. And 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 this is what I, I saw happening. These you know this, this horrible attack happened in Madrid. These horrible things happened in 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 England. The the Danish cartoon thing, and every time these things happened, there was first of all, let's let's worry about a backlash. There's going to be some kind of backlash. Be, you know we got to worry about the Muslims now. And of course the other thing is, the, the more bad things they did, the more. Th- Somehow they were innocent victims, and we must. And the more responsible we must be for what's going on. And and I, I mean, I I never thought I'd see something like this. It was a remarkable example of 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 of, of the human mind misfiring. Well, it's actually quite grotesque in that it it frankly it yeah. is racist towards Muslims because it removes their agency, right? I mean, they can't be making decisions based on their own volition. It must be that they are just instinctively responding to our wrongdoings. So so you literally remove their agency by repeatedly arguing from this perspective, correct? No, absolutely. The media would constantly be writing about these things as if, well, we can't expect anything else to happen when we say or do this or this or this. And it was as if they were a natural force. And we were triggering some natural force. And it it totally left the ideology behind their actions out of the picture. And that was what I saw over and over again. By this point, I, of course, I had read something about Islam. It's, you know, when you to grasp the basic points of what jihad is about is not that difficult. It doesn't take that long to actually read the Quran. Oh, but let me so let me let me come in now with my ostrich brigade hat hat and give yeah. you some. So, of course, Bruce, you're a white guy who's not from the Middle East, who's not an Arabic speaker. So, how could right. you truly understand that kill, 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 kill means really that when you translated the philology and the etymology of that word in Arabic? <laughs> kill means to caress gently while listening to Barry White. So, you're just a racist, Bruce. No, exactly. It's just, uh, to, uh, there was one point at which the New York Times book review printed this ridiculous article by Tariq Ramadan. Do you remember this? Oh, I know it's, Tariq. He, I mean, he wrote this article about, and it was in the New York Times book review, nothing to do with reviewing new books. It was about how you open the Quran and suddenly it's, it's as if like flowers and rainbows and unicorns come yes. jumping out of the Quran. And he, and it was this 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 and he and he's so good at at, at just uh, talking out the time and with, without saying anything and it was just this ridiculous uh, l- uh, love song to to the beauties of the Quran as if there were no actual content to it it's just beautiful poetry right. and it's like this and the media kept being complicit in this kind of nonsense. And it, and I'm like, God, what are they doing? What the hell's going on with these people? Yeah, Tariq Ramadan is a very, very slick fellow. And actually, He's a I, slick, that's the word. He's a slick character. And, and, and what happens, there's an expression that I've uh, introduced to my viewers, which I'll repeat here. It's an Arabic expression, but I'll translate it in English, obviously. It basically mm-hmm. goes something like this, to, to get drunk by smelling the cork of the wine bottle, right? You just smell and you get all dizzy and drunk. And that's what Tariq Tariq Ramadan is. He's the cork, right? He looks good. He's got a nice voice. He speaks in this postmodernist bullshit, uh, you know, verbal fluency stuff. And for the sort of Western buffoonish uh, liberals, quote liberals, my goodness, that's the kind of guy that we want to listen to. He is the future of secular Islam. And so they fall for it. But for somebody who comes from the region, who understands these issues, you see right through the guy that he's a complete snake oilsman, right? He's a four-flusher. It's nonsense. <laughs> right. Okay, so 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 okay, so this book comes out. Uh, you know, you're one of the early public figures to sort of, you know, put out this warning call. Apparently, very few. I mean, yes, the book was successful, but apparently, the intelligentsia didn't bother to listen to you. So then, fast forward to two thousand nine, you come out with a another book. What's the difference between that book and the earlier book? Maybe you could tell us a bit about that. Well, surrender was a systematic uh, examination of the ways in which uh, we're uh, selling out our free speech in order to appease Islam in the West. 
list. And, you know, it's, it's not just the media that have done it. It's, it's uh, people in government, people even in the military, people in the academy, uh, people in the art world where they pull down any, you know, art uh, displays that might offend uh, Muslims, uh, you know, authors of books uh, who uh, uh, are avoiding writing certain things because uh, they, they don't want to offend Muslims. So I just cataloged all of that in there. But the thing is, are you talking about the response to while you're upset? I had written a book, as I mentioned, called uh, Stealing Jesus, which was about Christian fundamentalism. And that came out in 1997. And when I wrote that book, I was a liberal hero. All the liberal media lined up to write about how wonderful this book was, how brave I was to, to criticize Christian fundamentalism in America. There's nothing brave about it. You can criticize the, that, um, what do you call them, the Fred Phelps people, the God Hates Fags. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, West, Westboro Baptist West Church. Borough. You can criticize Westboro all you want, they're not going to do anything to you. They're not going to kill you. Um, then I write, they come along and write a book criticizing Islam, and I'm this, this, this right-wing hate-mongering bigot. You know, and, and the thing is, I'm talking about a much more serious more dangerous uh, ideological phenomenon than than Christian fundamentalism in America, but this one is untouchable. Oh, I've I've documented this in in various ways, uh, even anecdotally on Facebook. I mean, if I put a post that is critical of some Hasidic Jewish uh, phenomenon, you know, I'll get all sorts of people who like it. If I comment about some uh, you know Southern senator who's an evolution denying uh, guy, then of course it's very progressive. If I, if, if I post a, a, a link demonstrating that some Iraqi astronomer uh, quotes the Quran to argue that the earth is flat, then I get somebody writing that, hey, why are you ganging up on these poor people? Uh, and yeah. so, so it's just extraordinary. This is, I think you probably heard the term, uh, the uh, bigotry of the, the lowered expectation. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. they, so somehow you have to kind of lower the bar, uh, which again is a form of bigotry, of racism. Bigotry. Somehow. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. Uh, now, of course, one of the only guys in Europe, and, 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 and I mention him in part because you were in the Netherlands, one of the only guys in Europe who has been at the forefront of speaking out against some of the inherent clashes between Islamic tenets and Western liberal secular democracies is Geert Wilders. Maybe for those folks who don't know much about him, maybe you could tell us about him and where you stand on his discourse. Well, he's the latest in a line of people in the Netherlands who have who have stood up against all this, and you know one of the first was Pim Fertown, who was going looked it looked very much as if he was he was he was a sociologist who became a politician because he saw what was happening with Islam in the in the Netherlands, and he was as, as liberal as 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 he could be possibly be he was uh, openly gay he was uh, um but uh, he was the, the minute he started criticizing islam as a, as a reactionary force he was denounced universally in that country as as a uh, as a uh, as a reactionary himself i mean universally meaning by the elite the, the people right. themselves he, he began to great following among the dutch people and he was on the verge of probably becoming uh, the next Dutch prime minister when he was uh, gunned down by a uh, um, what, do you, what do you call it uh, a green activist, you know. And uh, so then uh, along came Theo van Gogh, who was uh, you know an, out, an outrageous provocateur on the Dutch media scene. He was uh, um, he, he made a short film against Islam uh, with, uh, in collaboration with Ayan uh, Hirsi Ali. And he got gunned down by a Muslim. And I think he even shoved a he knife got, in his... Knife. Yeah. Yes, and they shoved a knife in his, in his belly. With a message. Uh, with a message saying, you will go down, oh, Netherlands, you will go down, oh, Europe, you will go down, oh, America. And, uh, and, and the guy who did it was, had been brought up in the Netherlands. He was a, a Muslim who was, would, would have been held up as an example example of wonderful integration until he did that. And then Irony Ali, who was this incredibly brave, brilliant woman who, you know, who came from the Islamic 
the world, who escaped a forced marriage, um, be, uh, taught herself Dutch, be, became a member of the Dutch Parliament, stood up very bravely, you know, against uh, against Islam, which she renounced after 9/11, um, and, and and she ended up being being demonized. They couldn't call her a racist. They couldn't call her an Islamophobe because that was her background. She's a porch monkey. But. That's yeah, that's the term yeah, that they use. Yeah, yeah, that's well, that's what she was, and uh, according to to them, and so she had ended up having to to flee to the U.S. And so then along comes Kurt Wilders, who is a, a a man who has, you know, again been labeled by all right-thinking people in the media in Europe and North America as as some kind of horrible right-wing bigot. When this this is a guy who has stood up. For uh, a liberal democracy, for secularism, for the rights of women, for the rights of gay people in that little country, which has been increasingly Islamized, and he's uh, you know the head of of his own party, which has grown and grown, and he's been uh, targeted by the the authorities. They have him on trial for. Uh, for 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 speaking out his mind. Do you remember the case? And maybe you could add to whatever I might describe here. The, a few a few years ago, when he was taken to court for so-called hate speech, uh, yeah. during his uh, presentation, he he basically said, "Look, I mean, do you contest the truth or the veracity of anything that I'm saying?" Uh, of, of course, incidentally, whether it's true or not doesn't matter, right? People have a right to say wrong right, things and be idiots but he said do you contest the truth or veracity or accuracy of anything that i'm saying and if you remember uh, the magistrate had said it didn't matter whether what you say is true or not so if it's true it doesn't matter if it foments hatred right so yeah. truth if it's offensive becomes illegal yeah truth is no defense right exactly it's, it's, if it's offensive offensive and 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 they're the ones who decide what's offensive and offense only goes in one direction nothing that that happens in the islamic community or is said or done by the islamic community is, is we're not allowed to, to say that we find any of that offensive right but but they can say if he criticizes it if he just talks about it if he describes it factually he's being offensive. This well, is what's going on in Europe nowadays. And by it? the way, that's why we're going to come back to Scandinavia yeah. in a second. But yeah. in, in, in Scandinavia, when they report crimes, they remove the identity of the perpetrators because mm -hmm. to include that information would be construed as racist. I mean, it really, one has to step back and really stop to try to believe that such a reality can exist. You're a journalist whose job it is to report as accurately as possible information for public consumption, but mm. reporting on the identity, say, of gang rapists is frowned upon because then you're going to be marginalizing the other. It's extraordinary. Well, the Germans are sending, do you see this in the last few days? It's been in the, in the news. The Germans are sending police to people's doors to 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 uh, ransack their their homes if if they're found to be writing things online that are considered offensive to Islam and this is this is only the latest in a, a series of outrages people have been going on trial Lars Hedegaard in Denmark and uh, Elizabeth Sobodich Wolf in in Austria uh, Austria and other people in France and it, it this is the new Europe this is the new West. So what I, I want to then drill down in a second to Scandinavia because you moved then from the Netherlands to Norway. But before we do that, do, do you see the pendulum at some point? I mean, switch. I mean, you're right there in the trenches. Clearly, the public is aware of these issues. There is mm -hmm. a complete disconnect between the public and the leaders. Uh, do you see the pendulum switching, or and and if so, how do you see the the the, the thing playing out? <clears throat> It has to, it has to, something's got to give, and I think it has to give pretty soon, but I, I think the problem here is in Europe, I mean, in the States, we, and, and, and I suppose in Canada, we're used to the idea of, of uh, that, that this is our country, these people in the government work for us, 
we have a right to get worked up and outraged and 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 uh, and and uh, you know if if the governments are instituted among men and if if they uh, don't uh, do what they're supposed to do we have a right to, to to stand up against them there is less of that kind of thinking here in europe among people people are used to having a, a an elite above them that that takes care of things for them they they're, they're used to having that they it gives them comfort it gives them a freedom from responsibility um and uh, as much as they may complain about politicians and parties, they are, are, are used to being able to just leave those things to the professionals. So they're more and, passive, basically. They're more passive. They're more passive. This is the, but politicians are a professional class. You wouldn't have uh, somebody like a Trump coming along out of, out of, uh, out of left field or, or whatever in Europe suddenly running for the the head of the country. It doesn't work that way here. Um, it, uh, so there is, yeah, there's a passivity. There's a long ingrained passivity. And, and uh, of course, you know, you talk to people uh, about these things and if you know them well enough, they'll open up to you about their concerns about it. But some, then again, so many people have been so trained from childhood by schools, by universities, by media here to 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 uh, to think that uh, even having a bad uh, uh, a certain certain opinions about what's going on in this country is is a thought crime. Right, right. And uh, they they'll say, well, I you know, I mean, I, I, I had a friend who who's uh, in Oslo, whose uh, whose doctor was was murdered in cold blood in his office by an asylum seeker who just walked in and pulled out a huge knife and just stabbed him to death for no reason whatsoever. And my friend and I were having a, a drink together and he said, uh, well, I, I hope this doesn't sound racist, but I, I think maybe things are getting out of hand. I said, what did you just say that could possibly be described as racist? Right. Yeah, Why they, do you say that? Why do you even think that? There's a real trepidation. There's a, there's a timidity about yes. sort of admitting to certain statistical regularities that are as obvious as the existence of gravity, but people are so insecure about what they should believe. And, and I see it myself because when I have, in, in some cases, private conversations with people, you almost feel as though them hearing me say the things that I say gives them permission to feel what they feel. Because, you know, I come from Lebanon and I've got brown skin and I speak Arabic. So, so you mean, so my lies are not deceiving me. So it's okay. I'm not a neo-Nazi for believing some of these things. And you really see it as if the, the, the weight is coming off their shoulders because you're giving them this, this, this permission to think these yeah. things. It's quite extraordinary. So let's move to the sort of the kings of the passivity that we're speaking of. So you leave Netherlands. You move to Norway, or more generally Scandinavia, because there is worse than Norway, which we'll drill down to. So tell yeah. us what happened in, in Norway once you escaped from the Netherlands. Well, one of the big incidents was the Danish cartoon uh, business. And when, when those cartoons came out and, uh, you, know, these, these, you know, this newspaper, Jans Posten, printed... Uh, a dozen or so cartoons of Muhammad as a way of demonstrating that we're not going to be scared to do this sort of thing. And the Islamic world was went berserk. Um, people incited it to go berserk. And uh, there was a lot of pressure put on um, uh, the Danish government and other Scandinavian governments to uh, apologize. And the, uh, the then... Uh, Prime Minister of, of Denmark quite properly refused to uh, apologize and refused to. I mean, there was a, a group of uh, ambassadors from Muslim countries came to him and said, "You know, we want to talk to you about this." He says, "I'm not even going to meet with you. There's nothing to talk about. This is a free country." Whereas here in Norway, um, a, a man with a, a small newspaper that none of us had ever heard of, a Christian uh, weekly. Um, Printed uh, the cart reprinted the cartoons out of solidarity with Jens Posten, and the whole 
establishment came down on him uh, like a, whatever the cliche is. And uh, the, they, the, 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 the prime minister of Norway put pressure on him to apologize. And uh, um, he just held out for a while, but he eventually, uh, he eventually gave in. And, uh, and then they sent the head of uh, or one of the top bishops in the Church of Norway to whoever the hell it was, Qatar, to to uh, to uh, the um, what's his name, the big Muslim uh, uh, know-it-all soothsayer and uh, imam, uh, uh, you know what I mean? The, the grand to sheikh, it, yes. The grand puba of Islam, right. to uh, to uh, whose name is escaping me because I block I, I block on these things because I hate knowing these things. Uh, uh, to apologize to him, to, to beg his forgiveness. For, for having reprinted these cartoons. And that's the kind of mentality that we've had here. And there's, there's this, this is, this is, it's, it's, and this is a, this is a country that has so much good about it. And the people themselves in Norway are such, uh, by and large, freedom loving, brave people of, with a farmer stock, you know, no nonsense, down to earth, the, the real thing. Kind of people. I mean, you know, we a lot of uh, people from this country helped form America and Canada, and they, they they were some of the you know best citizens of of, of those countries, and it's just strong and, and asking nothing of of anybody, and, uh, and it's a it's a really admirable people. But the elite is so corrupt and cowardly, and and so ready to sell out all the principles that that, uh, that this country was based on that it's just damn depressing so now what do you what do you think and I often ask this question to people in many areas of lunacy and so let me let me pose it to you do you think that those elites in the privacy of their thoughts late at night when they go into the covers of their beds do are they aware of the reality, or have they so deluded themselves that they actually believe their utter suicidal positions? What What do you think is happening psychologically here? This is a question I always ask too. I don't know. Do you know? You know, I I think it's a combination of things. I think I think. I okay. Mean, yeah. So let me let me let me sort of try to drill down. Yeah. I think in Sweden, in Nor in Norway, in Scandinavia, and in many places in the West. Yeah. Formal religion has been replaced by another type of yeah. lunacy, right? In this yeah. case, sort of infinite tolerance, infinite goodness yeah. is the starting point of our secular, quote, religious beliefs, right? right? And just like in religions, you suspend belief, right? It, you, you don't use yeah. evidence to argue against a religion, right? You have to yeah. have faith. So the same thing happens with the, the manner by which their brains have been parasitized by this discourse, which is it doesn't yeah. matter what statistical evidence I provide you, you could never depart from your starting, quote, secular religious position, which is that the others are good. There is no amount of evidence that could sway you from that position. So if, you, if your brain becomes truly parasitized by this memeplex, then... That's what happens. And so it is quite conceivable that they truly believe their bullshit because they've been infected by this memeplex. So that's one possibility. What do you think of that? Well, and also, the worse they behave, the more virtuous we are if we accept it. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and actually, it demonstrates how bad we are because they couldn't have behaved this badly yeah. were it not that our grievance was so great to cause them to react in this way. And so again, when yeah. you, go ahead, go ahead. Yes, because we're so blind to the damn cultural differences and we don't realize how powerful those differences are that we interpret those actions in terms of what would it take for us to do those things. Right. And we assume that we've done that to them. Right. We assume that we've done to them what, what would have to be done to us in order for us to, to commit such atrocities. Right. So, do you, so okay. So then, in in Norway, we know, for example, the the rape stats are quite clear in terms of the patterns. Do you want to comment on that at all? Yeah. Well, it's uh, and in Sweden, it's even worse. In Sweden, uh, it's even worse. It's usually not the Amish. I'm guessing it's not the Seventh Day Adventists. I'm thinking it's not Hasidic Jews. Is that correct? It's not New Atheists. 
Is that is that right? Am I on the right track? I think you may be right about, okay. about that. Yes. All right. And, so and uh, and the, the but the thing is that the the pattern has been obvious for years. I mean, it, before. Nine, even before 9-11, it was a few days before 9-11, there's a woman named Uni Vikon who's a, uh, uh, what is she, a cultural anthropologist, some kind of anthropologist here in Norway. Very, very famous woman, she's always on television. And she's supposed to be an expert in, in Arabic and Islamic cultures. And uh, I think it was just uh, within a week before 9-11, she came out in one of the newspapers and said, well, you know, and even then there was, a, it's much worse now, but even then it was an issue, it was a problem. And she said, you know, Norwegian women are going to have to yeah. stop dressing in a provocative way because they're, you know, they have to be aware that, that, that it's a multicultural society, things are changing, and they, they need to take into account the way that uh, these men from these other cultures think. Uh, because the, the bottom line was, if you don't start dressing the the way they do in that culture, then you're responsible for your own rape. And this mentality has continued to this day, and it, you know, and and that on on top of that, of course, we have the, the authorities trying their best to either hide statistics or fudge with them, and and you know, play games with them so that it, it doesn't look as bad as it is. And but the everyone knows what is really going on and there's just an increasing disconnect between the official line and what people really know right now sweden so that now you you were just describing norway S- among the hierarchy of the lunatics sweden takes the the sort of the gold medal what is happening in the water that the swedes are drinking that is sort of sending them off the abyss of infinite darkness at a rate faster than any other Western country. What is there a particular mechanism that could explain what's happening in Sweden? The closest I've been able to come to an answer to that is to think about World War II. And in World War II, um, the Norwegians distinguished themselves uh, as, as a, the Norwegian resistance, I should say, just, Distinguished itself. It was a, you know, they they prevented they they may well have prevented the Germans from developing the atom bomb. They you know there's there were real heroes in this country, and the Dan the Danes famously saved almost all of the the, the Jews in that country, uh, and shipped them over to actually Sweden as it happens, uh, which was a safe place because it was an officially neutral country. Now they were officially neutral, but at the same time. They were very, uh, uh, the elite there was very friendly to the Germans. And uh, th- there was there was an actually very good uh, movie uh, not, not that many years ago. Uh, golly, what was the name of it? Um, about about the, 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 one, <laughs> the one member of the Swedish resistance, you might say. This, I, you know, there were others, I suppose. But there was one man who was an editor of a small newspaper. Uh, I think it was in Gothenburg. And he actually criticized the Nazis as they were gaining power in Germany and after they, gained, they took over. And he kept getting called on the carpet by the authorities until finally he got called in by the king, the king of Sweden. There's a scene in the movie, which is totally based on fact, where the, the king says, well, you've got to stop this. You have a prejudice against the Germans. And You're a Nazi, you're a Nazi-phobe. You're a Nazi-phobe. Right. You're a Nazi phobe, and I think they've never been able to. They, they, the, the, I think the Swedes maybe have never been able to live that down. Right. They were basically uh, de facto allies of the uh, Nazis during the war, and so they've been trying to make up for it ever since. And this whole um, uh, uh, refusal to see any problem with the rise of Islam in their own country is is a twisted result of that. So because of the Nazi transgression, uh, we mm-hmm. now will demonstrate our infinite goodness to make up for yeah. that past, which is, I think, some have argued, and I think probably correctly, that that's exactly what is driving Angela Merkel, right? It's, a, it's sort of a grand collective catharsis for what her grandparents may have done and the grandparents of Germans may have done. And by sort of self-flagellating ourselves into oblivion, we could hopefully redress the historical reality of what happened, uh, you know, 70 years ago. Is that is that fair to say about Merkel? Can you believe we thought she was a reasonable woman not that long ago? 
<laughs> right. Well, yeah, she's she's a lunatic. Uh, all right. So so I think we've covered some of the key issues with uh, uh, Islam. Let's move on now to your more recent book uh, regarding sort of identity politics, regarding the closing of the liberal mind. Maybe you can give us a quick elevator story summary of that book, and then we can sort of link it to some of the current realities that are arising in universities since you wrote that book. Go ahead. Well, it's just briefly, it's it's a, a kind of a taxonomy of all the different studies in uh, the uh, humanities and social studies in the universities nowadays that are based on identity. Right. You know, you can, there's gay studies or queer studies. There's women's studies, there's black studies or African American, Afro American, whatever you want to call it, Latino studies. And so on, um, and they and they. Is, is there a studies? Is there studies for overweight atheist Lebanese well, it's, Jews? It's, yeah, because I, I feel like there should be somebody representing me. Well, of course. I mean, and that's just it. Once you get started, there's nowhere to stop. There's fat studies. I, I mean, I, I, I in, in writing the book, I, I attended a bunch of conferences, and I actually sat in on on um, meetings where they were discussing fat studies. People were delivering papers about fat studies. And they've developed all these different, uh, I mean, I, I was going to say they developed all these different theories, but they're no different theories. They're just words. It's, 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 it's jargon. It's nonsense. It's all, a, they, they have, they, they get these pork heads who don't you, want to. You're a fattist, to... sir. You're a fatophobe. <laughs> you're a fatophobe. And I'm a self-hating fatophobe. You're a self-hating fatophobe. Uh... <laughs> so, so, okay. So, so the, basically the reality is that identity becomes the, 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 the epistemological framework from which we study things, right? And so it becomes well, a sort they, of... Go ahead. Now they take these kids who, who don't really seem to understand what it means to learn something, and they, and they, and they start teaching them this idiotic jargon and telling them that, that they're victims and that the whole society is arrayed against them. And, uh, and, 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 the, and, the, and the, what they try to do is get the, the goal, it's, it's like some kind of board game where like if, if you can if you're a lesbian and a woman uh, and you're overweight then you got you, you've got three whole uh, different categories in which you're a disabled a victim. disabled, you, you, disabled I, that's another one and 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 you know it's and and you know and of course the answer to none of this is it's 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 never well you know you really need to uh, you, you know part of the answer to this is you really need to be strong and you need to uh, uh, be able to fortify yourself against prejudice if there is any real prejudice against you and that's what no it's always it's always about learning to cry victim it's it's about reiterating these these formulas in in, in such a way as, and and then they think that they're saying something they think that they've learned something and all they've 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 learned is to keep to talking about what victims they are right so they, and assumption and the thing is these are all subjects that could conceivably be studied in a valuable way the history of 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 of, of of gay culture, you know the history of the treatment of women and the experience and and special whatever of women, uh, you know that you know all of these are subjects that could be treated in a serious academic way. Then the way that they they are treated in the university nowadays has nothing to do with anything like that. It's all just victimology. Right. And and this is what has led to what you know, these headlines that we're seeing increasingly in the last year or two nowadays about you know kids who and everybody ordinary people look and say what the hell's going on in the university, well, and, that, and that, that's what it does. It's, well, it's, I, I it's did, craziness. I, I did a I did a I delivered a lecture a couple of months ago at the University of Ottawa on political correctness and the thought police, and so I sort of and I went through a whole bunch of examples, some of the most yeah. egregious examples that I could sort of muster. And uh, I'll, I'll mention a few here because it fits in the context of, you know, the identity politics and victimology poker and oppression Olympics that, that we're talking about. Uh, yeah. So, for example, a professor at the University of British Columbia filed a human rights uh, tribunal case against the yeah. university because she had been denied tenure because she hadn't produced enough after many years. And she filed uh -huh. this, uh, this case because in her native uh, 
you know, first, I don't remember what the correct term for Canadian native indigenous people is, uh, but she, uh-huh. she said that there is an oral tradition. And so that by imposing sort of this other uh, cultures mode of communication, which involves, you know, writing, uh, oh, that yeah. <laughs> was against her. And that case is being heard by the, uh, I don't know if it's the British Columbia Human Rights Tribunal or whatever, whichever body it is. So the fact that someone in academia can actually propose this, and it's not a satirical piece, and it can be taken seriously, demonstrates how cancerous this type of thinking has become, right? And it's, the thing is, when the book came out, um, the review in the New York Times uh, actually said, well, it's not as bad as he says it is, and actually things are getting bad. I read that review. I read it, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's always like that. Whenever, whenever <laughs> you warn people about something, you must be a fear monger. You must be distorting the truth. I mean, come on. It's not really that bad in Islamic countries. Come on. You're not really serious about all this, right? Because, again, it makes people feel, feel good, right? I mean, you're the quack who is saying all this <laughs> nonsense. The reality is much nicer. And, and I can go on about my day without worrying about what this uh, neo-Nazi fatophobe guy is saying right well i mean that's just it yeah they either they they say that you're exaggerating things out of all proportion or just dismiss you with some 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 epithet you know you're you're, you know you're racist you're a bigot you're hysteric um do you see this uh, and yet here we are this is what's you know we're we're living with the result of the now do you now yes what's that i I was going to say that i'm if i may say i'm one of the few professors, you know, you're out of academia, right? So in a sense, you could say you don't have skin in the game because you could utter all the things that you utter. You could espouse all the positions that you do and you won't necessarily have the the same uh, blowback as I might. Uh, Yet I'm very vocal about it. Do you you think that there is a growing number of academics that you're aware of that are basically saying enough is enough? We need to reclaim proper discourse. We need to bring back reason, logic, science, uh, to the to the to the campuses, or do you see this only worsening? I certainly don't see a lot of new voices, but you would maybe you would know that better than I do. Do you think there are not too many? I mean, what I do get, and I've I've said this previously publicly, uh, I do get a lot of academics who privately write privately, to me, yes, saying, exactly. saying oh, what a hero, I, what a hero I am, and, and how they admire my work, and how oh. they wish they had the courage. Uh, but of course, then they don't have the courage to just like my Facebook page. I mean, just like it, not even comment on it, right? Just liking it might be too dangerous because then they would be criticizing some colleague or so on. And I think that that's, I mean, it's just preposterous that academics who whose, whose job it is to discuss ideas, debate ideas, challenge each other's ideas are some of the most tepid folks that one could imagine. And I mean, I, I keep saying that unless we're able to kind of get out of that stupor, the future does not look too bright. No, you're, I totally ag- agree with what you just said about academics. I mean, I don't, I've never understood why you go into s- such a line of work if you plan on keeping your mouth shut about the facts. <laughs> I don't get it. I mean, I became a writer so that I could write the truth as I see it. Because I think it's, it's careerism. What, it's careerism. But want to make a career in something else where you don't have to you know, constantly be biting your tongue. I don't get it. Yeah. I just don't get it. Yeah, I, I, I think the reality is that most people, and I've again, I've said this previously, I think that cowardice is regrettably the eighth deadly sin that we should add to the existing seven deadly sins. And so most people, you know, want to just go about their daily lives. They want to go into their lab. They want to do their, their stuff. They want to go unnoticed, short of whatever they're doing in their scientific work. And they just don't have the courage and personality, frankly, to, I mean, it, because it, it, it's, it's not enough to have the intellect to engage these ideas. You also have to have the personality, right? I mean, people have asked me, well, why are you so outspoken? Well, it's just because the random combination of genes that make up GAD-SAD are such <laughs> that I cannot be quiet about bullshit. It offends me, right? I know, same here, exactly. I, I feel as though I am being complicit in the cheating 
if I don't speak out. And the only way I can go to bed at night feeling good in my personhood is to speak out against it and let the repercussions be whatever they are. But at least I know that I am whole as a person. I stuck to the truth. And I think that that ultimately is the trait that differentiates the one who speaks or doesn't speak. It's not, the, it's not that the one who doesn't speak is any dumber. It's that he, he or she simply doesn't have the courage of his or her convictions. And so one of the things that I often try to do through these engagements is that hopefully people watch these clips and are inspired to come out. And I get a lot of emails from people, academics and just public at large saying, you know what, watching you, I now have the cook the courage to take on some of my friends at the party, right? And so I do it, I do all this not because I'm going to make any money of it. I, I don't make much money off it. Uh, I do it because hopefully it will promote people to come out of the woodwork. Well, I hope so. I just, and the thing that gets me though is like, what's so interesting, you can understand like somebody who's like in, a, in a, uh, an untenured academic position being nervous about saying everything they might want to say. But somebody who's tenured and where, where the only fear is that they might be uncomfortable at a party, right. that's, that that's enough to keep them from, from, from speaking out about the truth and maybe changing some minds and maybe helping shift the culture and save the future. Yeah. That, that I don't get. That I don't get. People who have children. I don't have children. I do. Young ones. Yes, and of course, so that, that you're invested in all this. Yeah, and actually, I've I've had this yeah. conversation with my wife because, yeah. uh, you know, she's often told me, you know, what what you know, why do you have to sort of take the mantle and take? The, I say because I'm not doing yeah. it for me because, uh, you know, I've got if I can another forty years, but I do it because we've got young children and I don't want them to grow up in an environment that is less free than the environment to which we escape. Right? I mean, remember, my wife and I. She came to Canada from Lebanon when she was very young. She was almost three. I came when I was 11. We, um, my family escaped execution in Lebanon. We're Lebanese Jews. So I know what those cultures are. I came to Canada and I couldn't believe that there was a place where you could walk around free and not worry about your identity. I mean, in your case, you worry. I mean, how's it working out for uh, gays in Raqqa? Uh, not too well, right? Uh, and so whether you're gay or a woman or uh, animal rights or Jewish rights, uh, these folks don't fare too well in some of these uh, theocratic environments. And so I do this not so much to protect me and Bruce Bauer, but to protect our children. Uh, and yet most people don't care. They think, let somebody else worry about this. I've got to publish my paper to get tenure. I've got to get the groceries. I've got my son's bar mitzvah. And again, it's it's cowardice. And so many people just don't appreciate what it means to, to live with the freedom that they live with. They hear people saying things like this and they think it sounds corny and, 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 and naive. And the sophisticated thing to do is to is to mock the idea that uh, that the west or especially america for example uh, ha has some special liberty that that is is worth honoring and worth protecting and that it, it, this is kind of an you know an old fashioned idea and in the academy people that these kids are brought up to or they're trained to 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 sneer at these things right well i so which kind of leads us to, I mean, I guess that's part of the moral relativism. Who are we to judge the other culture? Who are we to argue that our cultural values are better? And that is quite connected to something that we, I think, both uh, hold great disdain towards, and that is postmodernism. This leads us to the last segment where we talk about postmodernism and some of the work that you do in literary criticism. So first, tell us about your position as, of course, an expert, as somebody who did a PhD in English, What's your views on uh, Foucault, Lacan, Derrida, and the rest of the bullshit scam artists? <laughs> you, just, you just pretty much answered it for me. Well, I just I wanted to make sure that you knew. I wanted you to know what my position was. Well, I, had no, I had no doubt what your position was. <laughs> I, I, I can say is that I agree with it. And, it, and it, it's that, that, that whole mentality has been so poisonous, not just just in the academy and in literary studies, but gen generally, culturally, uh, just just the, just these fashionable ideas of the nihilistic ideas, these 
ideas that anything can mean anything or that uh, words can mean what we want them to mean or that uh, um, any text is of equal value to any other text uh, and that sort of thing. Um, it's, it, 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 I mean, I, as a literary critic, I became a literary critic because I, I was a, a kid who loved to read. And I, there were certain books that I loved more than other books, and I was curious to know, okay, what makes this so wonderful? That's, you know, that's, that's you know, what, what, and what makes America better than Russia? What makes, you know, the, you know the, the, we need to exercise critical faculties throughout our lives, and it's, everything is not equal to everything else. So how... Um, Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. Go ahead. So I was going to say, so then again, it leads me to a question that I asked earlier when I said, do you believe that those political elites believed in their nonsense? So here's a question that I've also asked in the exact same form regarding all the people who either buy into postmodernism or the ones who originally espoused it, like the French postmodernists. Do you yeah. think that... Well, let's speak about Foucault, Derrida, and Lacan. Do you think that they actually, when they just come up with this random, utter, nonsensical gibberish, do they actually believe that they're creating meaning? Or are they just sitting in the privacy of their thoughts and saying, my God, I've, I've, I've landed on a fantastic scam that makes people at Princeton go bravo, bravo at utter nonsense, and I'm going to ride this bullshit all the way to the bank. So which is it? I mean, could they be this deluded that they actually believe that they contributed something to intellectual discourse? Well, first of all, there's something about the French. <laughs> he yeah. said it, folks. He said it. I didn't say it. I mean, if you read an, an editorial in Le Mans, sometimes they get so carried away with their words. Yes. And and the, and it's and it's the point by the end of it. The point is is to is to sound ringing and pretty rather than to make a point. Um, I think I only exaggerate slightly. And then there's something about the academic milieu where you know you you you're, you're isolated in these in in these you know places often which are very nice with trees and gardens and and lawns, and and you know you you get into this mindset with each other where nothing has anything to do with the real world, and and you can you can you can uh, you, you, you get to this thing where you're trying to outdo each other with with uh, spinning spinning plates you know and it and it's, that's all that's i mean but that's just uh, me guessing at it i mean i i can't imagine uh wanting to do that with words i love i love words too much to want to be that 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 cruel to them well and 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 i think so so the jury is out on as to whether the 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 originators of this bs truly believed in their nonsense i think that frankly they didn't okay now, from the perspective of the audience, right, so the ones who are consuming that nonsense, I think that they typically engage in a form of intellectual self-flagellation, whereby yeah. they say, the fact that I don't understand this impenetrable nonsense is because yeah. I am dumb, right? Clearly, Derrida must be saying something profound. And the fact that I don't understand these randomly put together words yeah, yeah, yeah. Must, is a reflection of how stupid I am. And as a matter of fact, I've had a lot of people both publicly and privately communicate with me that, my God, until they saw my criticisms of these folks, they actually went through university thinking that they were idiots because they never well, understood postmodernism. And, that I, and I liberated them from their insecurity about them being idiots, that in reality they weren't idiots, it was just a scam. Well, a lot of this was about people in the humanities and social sciences buildings looking over across the quad at the people in physics and chemistry and biology and astrophysics buildings. I've that said were the sending, same thing. I've said the exact same thing. to the moon and they're thinking what the hell am i doing i'm reading a poem i'm analyzing a poem there's got to i got to i got to compete with these guys somehow right, right. i mean you you, know? you uh you know uh einstein said and i'm i'm sort of paraphrasing i don't remember the exact quote but that you know you know if it's a physics paper when if by the second page you're lost and uh, <laughs> it, it, you you know that it's a mathematics paper if by the second line you're lost or something to that effect right uh, right uh, mathematics uh, involves and as somebody who studied mathematics, right, it involves 
an otherwise impenetrable language to those who yeah. are on the outside, right? And now, yeah. But why are those bastards in mathematics so smart and they are sort of on the top of the intellectual hierarchy? I can create the same type of impenetrable verbal fluidity using my own randomly concocted symbols, right? I'm just as good as the number theorists in the mathematics department. So I think you are exactly spot on. I've said the exact same thing. When I was, uh, my first day in graduate school, I, I, I went to meet with the head of the department, as we all had to do. And he looked at my uh, scores on uh, whatever test that is you have to take. And he said, well, why aren't you in physics? And I thought, well, that's a, this is this is a, this is an insecure fellow. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, this 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 field is is it good enough for smart people? Right. I mean, what is this? And, and that's really what is going on there to a large extent. It's like it's not good enough, and there's not this understanding that hello, it's not supposed to be competing with that. It's right. two different things. Right. Right. Exactly. Now, things. so what are the tools? So okay. So let's say if we if we agree that Pomo is not the way to go. You are a literary critic and a film critic and a culture critic. What are the tools that you use in your critiques? And then I will bring in some of my evolutionary stuff to hopefully complement some of your tools. But tell us about, you know, the way you go about drilling down a particular cultural form. How do you do it? Well, golly, I don't know. That, that's the hardest question of all, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I... I I started out as a, you know, as an academic. I mean, as a, I, I got my PhD. I learned how to do it. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I studied under professors from different uh, pre-postmodern uh, schools of criticism. You know, um, um, uh, the, the, the Chicago critics. Uh, you know, the, the the new critics, as they were called, uh, but uh, impressionistic critics. The, I mean, the, the, generally, the idea was just to to look at the text and to try to understand what it's really saying and the way it works and the, the way in which different devices work to make it effective and so on. Um, and, you know, so I wrote, I wrote academic papers uh, at the time that were, uh, you know, where they were kind of written in this dry academic way. I mean, it, but, uh, you know, the, after that, I mean, you know, I started writing for a general law and you, you approach it in a different way and you just kind of uh, approach things of, uh, in an impressionistic way you get a, get a, a, a sense of, of what uh, of, of uh, what what the work is doing and how it's doing it and and try to uh, try to uh, account for it in an interesting way uh, uh, um, entertaining, hopefully entertaining way. Now, do you usually come from a particular lens? For example, you know, the Marxists will use some sort of Marxist uh, perspective. The feminists will use a feminist perspective. Or are you sort of ideologically free coming into the process to tell a story about that particular uh, production? No, I don't. I don't think of myself as approaching it with any ideology. I mean, some works have an ideology impregnated in them, and you you write about that. I mean, you know, a novel can be a feminist novel, and you so you write about that. Um, but uh, I, I, I mean, I mean, I don't feel comfortable with uh, any, frankly, any ideology. I think. I mean, and I don't. I don't. I don't pretend that what I'm doing is is anything other. Than one individual's take on what it is that I'm that I'm writing about, um, you know, and, and uh, um, that's that you're not supposed to do that in the academy nowadays, right? Uh, yeah. and, 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 <laughs> hence your identity study stuff, right? You have to come yeah, from a particular yeah, yeah, voice, right? That's why usually, by the way, a lot of the folks who do this literary criticism will start off by making sort of a confession, an admission of all their identities, right? I am going to analyze this from the perspective of an overweight atheist Lebanese Jew evolutionist, right? Because I am sort of, <laughs> I am warning the audience that yeah. this is my prejudice or bias yeah. as I come into the process, right? That, that's very much yeah. how they tackle it, right? Yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, I haven't written a lot of, I don't write as much literary criticism as I used to, but I mean, when I do, I just try to, to keep it as free of, uh, of jargon and as free of, uh, uh, I mean, it, it should actually be fun. Right, true. 
So here's here's my uh, let's see if we can reconcile or bring together or create consilience. I love that word. Consilience is a term that was sort of reintroduced into the public lexicon by E.O. Wilson, the evolutionary biologist. He wrote a book in the late 1990s called Consilience, which basically right. means the unity of knowledge. Right. So physics is more consilient than sociology. Right. And so right. Uh, in my work, when I uh, introduced evolutionary psychology to consumer behavior, I argued that the only way that you can get consilience in the behavioral sciences is by using evolutionary theory as the meta framework for understanding human affairs. I mean, you can't understand humans without understanding the evolutionary forces that have shaped their minds. Now, interestingly, I use evolutionary theory also for explaining cultural products, right? So I talk about fossils of the human mind being these cultural products. So we could study an ancient Greek tragedy or a movie plot line or a television plot line or an art piece or a religious narrative and look at the themes that are embedded within these great works of art and literature because they say something about our invariant human nature. And so there's a field called Darwinian literary criticism, which seeks to exactly apply evolutionary theory to understanding literature. What do you think about the marriage between evolutionary theory and your world of literary criticism? Well, it's been a long time since I read Jung, but isn't that kind of what you're getting at? I mean, Jung talks about, yes, the sort of the collective unconscious, but I mean, he doesn't, at least as far as I know, he doesn't necessarily couch it in very clear, you know, evolutionary biological mechanisms as we right. understand evolutionary theory today. But yes, if yeah. you want to be charitable, you could potentially make that link. Uh, but I mean, general, so let me give you an example maybe, and then you could, so, you know, there yeah. are a few common universal themes that drive much of literature, right? I mean, sibling yes. rivalry, sexual competition, parent-child offspring, paternity uncertainty, right? So these are the stuff of life. And each of these phenomena are very much rooted in very clear evolutionary principles. And so that's why this ancient Greek tragedy could be read in a class in Cairo or in Brazil or in Russia across thousands of years and everybody gets what the main theme line is because, yes, yeah. yes. so does that make so so i think one of the ways that we could create a more formal framework for analysis of cultural products is by marrying the natural sciences with the humanities and hence that's exactly the point that eo wilson was making when he talked about consilience right i mean the humanities and the social sciences don't somehow exist outside of our biology, right? Uh, yet, you, and but yeah, but to you it's obvious and to me it's obvious, but of course to most people who study the social sciences and humanities, they can go on to great, wonderful, successful careers as academics without uttering the word biology once. And that to me doesn't seem to make sense. No, I think what you're saying makes, it makes a lot of sense and it's fascinating. Well, that's what a wonderful oh. thing to, to receive from a great literary critic such as yourself. So let's end it this way. Are there any projects that the public w might not be aware of yet that you'd like to promote here in terms of upcoming things that you're working on that you can get the folks excited about? Well, let's see. I mean, I'm writing, I, 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 I'm working on a book, but I don't know how much I want to talk about it okay. right now. But uh, if, uh, if anything comes of it, I'll... I'll You'll be the first. To know. <laughs> well, you, you're 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 welcome back on the show anytime that you'd like. Uh, hey, Bruce, absolutely fantastic talking to you. Uh, I could keep you here for another five hours, but uh, I'm sure you've got other better things to do than to sit here chatting with me. So, thank you so much for being on. Stay on the line. Uh, it'll be up probably later tonight uh, at Aura TV and tomorrow on my YouTube channel. Thanks, Bruce. Excellent. Thank Cheers. you very much. Cheers.